If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Nehemiah. If you don't have your Bibles, raise your hand. Okay. Uh, Mr. Knight, underneath your seat is a box of Bibles. You want to grab a couple? And if you don't have a Bible at home for your morning quiet times, uh, you can go ahead and use those. I haven't used a handheld mic in years, and so we're going to see how this goes, okay? Uh, and you should be in Nehemiah, and then for hold your finger there, and then go over to Matthew. At the very end of Matthew, I think it's chapter 28. Uh, in chapter 28, you see one of the hardest commands that there ever is in Scripture. Jesus gave a, a few things that we should follow, but in Matthew 28, he gives something that I think is a little bit more difficult than uh, anything having to do with our neighbors, anything having to do with money, anything having to do with selling things or marriage or sex or work. I think this is one of the hardest commands that we are given by Jesus. And for me, at least, it's one of the hardest ones. But here's what it says. Matthew 28, 19, 20. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you until the end of the age. It's troubling, right? Do you see the troubling part of this? Uh, its implications are quite wide-ranging. It means that you can't just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. There's actually a job for you and I to do. There is uh, something for us to get going on. Jesus says this. He says, therefore, go. The therefore, we wonder why therefore is therefore. Therefore, go. Jesus at the end of Jesus' ministry. He has risen from the dead, and now he's getting going uh, ascending into heaven, and he gives his disciples one last charge. It's repeated again in, in Acts chapter 1-8, but this one has the command attached to it. Go, based upon everything that I've done for you, based upon, you know, the whole dying and resurrecting thing, that, uh, me showing you how to live your life, go, because of everything that I've done, now you go. You have something to do. And the word go isn't just like, get out of here, get, get, get on your way. It's present perfect intense, which means it's an ongoing go. So go, therefore, because of everything Jesus has done, go and live your lives out. And the way you live your lives out, showing people everything that Jesus has done. It's scary. Paul hints at this in Ephesians 2. Uh, he says there's a next step after saying yes to Jesus, and there is. It's one thing to have a relationship with Jesus, to, to be able to know confidently that uh, if you were to happen to die, you'll, you'll spend eternity with him, or you have a hope at the end of the age, that all this stuff we see going on in the world around us, we can find hope in it because Jesus is righting all wrongs. There's one thing to that. But Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're being brought into the family of God. You've been adopted in, your sons and daughters, you are children of the inheritance, you've been called, you are in the family of God. And then he wraps this up in verses 8 to 10. He says, you've been justified by faith, not by works, great, so that, what, do you know the end of it? We can do good works, or if you're in Brad's translation, good stuff. We have things to do. Paul says your adoption isn't just for you to sit there as if you're on the bus stop waiting for uh, the bus to come and take you to heaven when you die. No, no, no. There's stuff to do. We have a job. That's why that Matthew 28, the Great Commission is what we call it in Pastorland. That's why it's so difficult. 
because it's commanding us to actually do something. But whenever it comes to those passages, there's a lot of guilt associated to it. There's a lot of missions conference around those passages. And so I start to wonder three questions that always causes my hesitation. Where do I go? Right? I'm commanded to go, but, but where? Uh, when, when do I go? In, in 10 minutes, four minutes, as soon as this bald guy's done talking, when do I go? And then how do I go? These are tough questions. And they, that, that, that when you start dwelling on them too much, it takes us into the deep weeds of, well, is this God's calling on my life? And we, when you start talking about that, you start to stall out. You get in the mud. And then if you're not talking about calling, uh, which is this mythical thing that Christians like to blame for everything, uh, calling. And then if you're doing that, it's like, okay, calling. And then this one, is it God's will that I should go? Oh, then we're talking about calling and God's will. What's one or the other? And then you're just stuck in the weeds. You might as well sit down at the bus stop and wait to die, right? Because you don't know which way to go. That's why these questions are always haunting. What do I do? Where do I go? How do I get there? What goes on? How do I then, Jesus, if you say, therefore, go, how do I go anywhere? They're the toughest questions. And both of these, and usually you have these extremes of the distractions, and we're paralyzed. So instead, we second-guess everything. We'll, only, we'll talk about leaving. We'll talk about doing something. We'll have a good discussion in our small group about the possibility of perhaps maybe, if things work out, going somewhere, possibly but never actually doing anything about it. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about leaving and becoming a missionary someplace in, in, in Central South America or in Africa, or, or maybe that's it. Maybe that's one thing. Maybe one of you are, is open to that, and God's been putting it in your heart, and there's your confirmation. Perhaps that's it. But today I want to narrow it down to this. Jesus is telling his disciples, and Paul is telling the people he's writing to in Ephesus, that there is another step to your salvation. There's a next step for any any and every single one of us. And you're being invited, invited to it. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to put the feet to the pavement and start walking. God is inviting you to take the next step. Now that step can look like a bunch of things. Is it joining a small group? Maybe. Is it, is it serving here on a Sunday morning or someplace during the week? Maybe. Perhaps the next step is setting aside some regular time for prayer and reading the scripture, time alone with God. Maybe that's it. Or even taking part in a conversation with a coworker about Jesus, inviting them to church, and then having a conversation. Don't just invite someone to church. Hey, come to church, and then we're going to go get lunch, and then talk about it. Perhaps that's the next steps. Or maybe it's something else, but each one of us is invited to, to take a next step. We're all invited to get going. So, if you have your Bible still out, go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah represents, if you remember, the first phase of the return to Israel. Uh, the first one was Ezra. He goes back, and, or sorry, Zerubbabel. He goes back and he rebuilds the altar. Then they have worship. That's gather. Then Ezra comes around, and Ezra is the, the one who institutes growth. You can't just gather to worship. You have to grow. There's a growth aspect to our faith. Nehemiah represents the third and final phase of the return. Nehemiah goes from, from Persia back to Israel, and he becomes like a construction manager. He goes to do something about this. He goes where God led him to go. Because it's one thing for him just to be prompted to leave. It's another thing for Nehemiah to actually get on the camel 
and go all the way back over to Jerusalem. In Nehemiah, I want us to look at three movements that will help us as we follow the command to go. Before Nehemiah left Persia, he had a pretty sweet job. He says he was a cupbearer to the king, which meant that when the king got dinner, Nehemiah would taste it and make sure it wasn't poisoned. How would you like that job? Think of all the possibilities, right? Uh, if it was someone like me, uh, I would take a bite and go, <coughs> like, start choking and see what everyone did around me. All of this comes out because I'm holding this and someone said stand up. Anyway, but I wonder if he ever faked being, being poisoned. Okay, that's the question I want to ask Nehemiah when we get to heaven. Did you ever fake it? Okay. Anyway, the first movement that we see in Nehemiah is that he, was allow he allowed God to stir him. He allowed God to stir his heart. Nehemiah 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was at the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Okay, so where is he? He's in Persia, serving with the king. His buddies come back. Brothers, it could have been, it could have been brothers like family, or it could have been like one of his bros, you know, his hangout, one of his dudes. Okay, he asked them what's going on. And he asked them specifically about the folks that went back to Jerusalem. Then they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are being, have been burned with fire. Now, by the time Nehemiah hears this, Ezra has been there about 13 years. And it seems a bit odd to be busted up about a busted wall, right? It's a wall. Many of our yards don't have fences. Why is he bothered about a wall? Walls had more than just property boundaries. Walls were, were built around the city to protect them from things like animals running through the city, a wild herd, someone coming through, armies. They were a, a, a sort of defense. Walls also represented a sense of pride. A city with broken walls meant that the people in it were also broken. They were defeated. The Jews who had returned to their homeland were both in an unsafe condition, but they were also humiliated because they lived in a destroyed city. If you want to read about this in Nehemiah 2.17, he touches on it. He says, my people are humiliated because the walls are gone. Jerusalem's walls also represented a, a sign of God's blessing upon his people. The walls represented promises that God would rebuild them, that God would, would keep his promises to give them a future and a hope that God, would be, that God would use Israel to bless the rest of the world. And with no walls, there's no hope. So it's not just a wall. Nehemiah hears about the wall, but the wall was about security. The wall was about a self-worth. The wall was about hope. And instead of just hearing about this and report and moving on with this taste-testing day, he allowed the news to penetrate his heart. Look in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted before the God of heaven. This is what I want us to take a look at. He was open to having his heart stirred. It's so difficult for us or, or, uh, because simply if we allow ourselves to be stirred by something, there is so much in our world that can stir our heart. I drove down Aurora this morning. 
There's a lot of things on Aurora Avenue that can break my heart. If you drove down Market, you see the same thing. If you turn on the news, there is so much that can stir us. There is so much that can break our heart. So what we've done for that, if, or I've done for that, so maybe I'm confessing to you, is I've built up a defense mechanism. I just stop looking. I find different routes. I, have, I can feel so much. I can be frustrated by so much that I do anything to keep all the bad news away. And so we turn off the news, we cancel cable, we log off social media, all of this, it seems like a good idea in some regard, right? Don't drain your life with that. But we, when doing so, we also isolate ourselves from seeing the people and the ache around us. It's good not to be swimming in it all the time, but it's also good to have a little awareness of what's going on. We are only meant to carry so much, though. We're only meant to care for so much. And I think we've gotten away with this to which now we're affected by everything that comes across the newswire and we're emotionally exhausted about it. It's hard not to feel. Some of us need to back off. Some of us need to turn it off, turn the station on, turn on something else. Yet some of us need to actually engage. All of us need to allow God to use the aches that we see and feel to, do, to stir something in us to begin to do something about it. We can back off or we can engage, but all of us are required to actually, okay, God, what is my part in this story? Now, the ache or the heartache, the break that I'm, I, I'm referring to isn't always a devastating thing. Sometimes it's a situation that continually comes to your mind over and over and over again, and you're stirred because of it. It's nothing to do with outside. Maybe it's something to do with your friends, something to do with your group, something to do with here. It's like, no, God's stirring this in me. Don't ignore that. God might be stirring in your heart something, stirring in your heart for something or some place, and he's wanting you to step into it to bring hope to that spot. Nehemiah allowed himself to be stirred. And then all he did to allow himself to be stirred was he asked a simple question. Hey, how's it going over there? You guys just got back. What's it like? And then he was allowed himself to be touched by the pain that he encountered. He allowed his heart to break. A lot of us like to ignore when our heart breaks. Push it away. Don't do anything about it. Perhaps instead, we need to ask God, what is he leading us to when our heart does break? When we feel something about it, what do we do? And then that's Nehemiah's second movement. Once your heart breaks for something, what am I supposed to do about this? It's the second movement. Then he fasted and he prayed. Novel concept. He saw something. Instead of letting it go by, he felt it, and then he, pray about, he prayed about it. In the next five verses in chapter, in chapter 1, Nehemiah identifies himself with the pain of the people. He's praying for both what's go, what they're going through, but then he's saying, I am one of them. I'm experiencing this too. He identifies, he empathizes with what they're, what they're having to deal with. And then he reminds God something. He starts praying back the promises of God to God, which is a form of prayer that you see a lot in Scripture. David, Moses, Jeremiah, many of the prophets will say back to God, but God, you promised this. And they pray the promises. In other words, they're reminding God of everything he had said. Nehemiah saying, God, these are your people and they're defenseless right now. What's up with that? And he keeps praying and praying. And we could talk about 
uh, what, how people pray back then. Uh, or, but that's a whole topic because part of our faith is praying back and reciting God's promises to him because God doesn't break his promise. But there's one thing we need to note here. This wasn't just a quick one-time prayer when Nehemiah went, Oh, Lord, help those people. Okay, back. This was something that was time-bound. We know this because of timestamps. In Nehemiah 1.1, it says, In the months of Kislev, in the 20th year. That's Hebrew calendar. Kislev is this. Kislev kind of ties the two, two of our months together. November, December. Okay, so it's November, December. Nehemiah, here's what's going on that day in the courts. And then... Uh, if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, and uh, 1 1, he starts praying. November, December, he starts praying. Chapter 2 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That's a timestamp right there. Nisan is closer to our months of March and April. So Nehemiah heard about everything that's happening, and then he sat and fasted and prayed for close to six months. Okay? It's weird for us to think about that. He didn't immediately pack his bags and take off. He didn't know if that was his job to do. Nehemiah sat and prayed for six months. He dedicated himself to a time of prayer and discernment before he got on the road to move. There's several things we could take here. There's usually so much in our world that can break our heart. And, there's, and it's, it's very easy to be stirred. But that doesn't mean that we're all called to pursue those things right now. It's because the pace of our world, we feel that we need to jump into action and immediately fix all of the things. But what Nehemiah shows us is that there is a time of sustained prayer before any sort of action. There's some things that, the, that immediate action is needed. Don't mishear me. But in other things, sometimes we need to stop and pray about what God wants us to do. The Bible can be pretty confusing when it comes to stuff like that, and it drives us crazy, or maybe it drives me crazy. In the Bible, it's a matter of a few sentences. In real life, it's six months. Okay? Sometimes God doesn't take you from your pain to fixing the pain overnight. It takes time for us to get there. Perhaps before we go stepping into things, we should take some time and actually pray about what God wants us to do about the situation. Or even if we are the ones who are supposed to do something about it. Just because you feel something doesn't mean you're the one who's called to fix it. And that might sound weird and heartless to say, but you're not the savior of all the things. Let me let you off the hook of some things. Some of you are called to address the homeless situation in Seattle. More power to you. Others of you might be called to help out with Young Life. Others of you might be called to help out with the kids downstairs, okay? It doesn't mean you don't care about homeless people. It doesn't mean you don't care about downstairs. It means that God has put something specific on you that's different from that somebody else, and that's fine. There's a reason why I'm doing this and not middle school ministry, okay? Nothing against middle schoolers. You guys are rad, but as a special calling for people, okay? No offense, okay? There, there is a special calling for every single one. Now, not everyone's called to do what I do. Some people are called to do different things. It doesn't mean that they don't like those things over there. It just means that God, perhaps, through their prayer and searching, called them to something else, and that's good. 
I think a lot of times we go headstrong into whatever God has put in front of us and the trendy thing, and we end up exhausted and ticked off because it never really took, right? And then we're mad at people. We're mad at people for not responding. We're mad at the church for not doing the right thing. We're mad at God for not uh, blessing the fruits of our labor, however we say it. And really, God's like, yeah, but I didn't want you to do that anyways. That's somebody else's fight. Let them fight it. I want you to do this. Nehemiah prayed, and I bet one of his prayers was something like this. Lord, am I the one to go fix this wall? Is this what you want me to do? In Acts 6, there's a, this isn't going to be on the screen, but there's a, a, a passage where things weren't going perfectly in the early church. Some people were not getting their daily allotment of foods that everybody else was. And so the, the, the people, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews came to the apostles and said, hey, look, there's a discrepancy in the food passing out of things. I don't know what they would call it, but the food bank is not distributing food the way it should. Our widows are not being cared for. And the apostles came back and said, thanks for letting us know. We're, we're going to figure something out. And they go back and they think and they pray about it and they come back maybe the next day or the next week. I don't know. And they come back and say, hey, look, God hasn't called us to fix that problem but we think he's called you. And sure enough, as you continue on in Acts chapter 6, the people who brought the problem to the apostles are the ones who are fixing the problem to the apostles. It wasn't the apostles' job to fix the problems. Those people were being stirred enough to bring it to the apostles' attention, and then they stepped into what God wanted them to do. People are called to do different things, and that's okay. That's why we spend time and say, okay, Lord, is this what you're calling me to do? God will open the opportunities for us. Six months of praying. Now, Nehemiah prays for six months, and now look what happens in chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Carrie asked me that all the time. This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, he says. But I said to the king, may the king live forever, which is a great way to start a sentence to the king. Why should my face not look sad where the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, well, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Again, he prays. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Okay, Nehemiah prayed. And then he's probably praying for an opportunity, praying that God would show him something. And then the king asked about it. He's like, well, here's that opportunity. His first step was prayer. He waited for the opportunity. And then what happened when the door opened? He walked through it. He didn't just pray and pray and pray and pray. His prayer led him to action. Have you noticed, at least I've noticed with me, and maybe it's you too, that our actions sometimes never move beyond prayer? Uh, sometimes it's fine. God hasn't called you to fill that void, what we just talked about. However, sometimes there's another issue. We pray for God to open the door, to clear the path, whatever Christian colloquialism you want to say, but we never move through or walk down the path. We pray about it, and then we don't move. Perhaps it's because deep down inside of us there's this fear what happens if I do move? What happens if I actually take the step? There's a fear of action in our culture. We all love to do something, but there's this fear of action we have. 
Perhaps we've been praying that God would open a door for us. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a deeper friendship, a relationship, a ministry, or maybe we want to move. We're not sure if we should go. Then God opens up the door for us to leave, and we don't. Have we been there? I have. Because we have a fear of missing out on something. FOMO. Or sometimes we're missing out of the idea of something rather than actually just taking a part in the reality of something. What God is leading you to doesn't look like what you had thought of. So it's like this. You feel isolated. You realize, you know what? I can really use some uh, community around you. I can use some friendship. I need friends to encourage me. I need friends to be with me. Uh, So you pray for community. Then there's an invitation. Hey, we have this small group that's opening up or we have this service opportunity or we have this going on. And then you say, uh, well, I, I, I don't necessarily want to do that. You've been praying this whole time for God to open a door to community. And then finally, when the door is there to join a team, to join a group, to hang with some folks after service, you don't. Because if you say yes to something now, you're afraid of what you might have said no to in the future. When really God's like, hey, you prayed for this. Here's an opportunity Don't think about what you're missing. You're going to miss this if you don't take it. Uh, There was a story. My dad told the story. Then I saw it on uh, a TV show about a guy who was praying that God would save him from the flood. And he sends the police and the fire department to get them out. And he says, no, God's going to save me. And then a few few minutes later, fire department comes in a boat this time because the water's getting higher and higher. And he goes, no, God's going to save me. And then the water gets higher and higher, and now search and rescues with a helicopter, and they're over him saying, hey, get in the helicopter. And the guy goes, no, God's going to save me. Finally, the dude drowns in the flood, gets to heaven and says, God, why didn't you save me? He's like, did you see the boat? Did you see the helicopter? Did you see the person coming knocking on your door? We pray for opportunity, and oftentimes when God brings that opportunity, we're so fixated on our idea of the opportunity that we miss out on the actual opportunity that we've been praying for. Our ideas of what might happen take precedence over what is actually happening and we stay where we are. If we pray for an open door and then a door opens, don't complain about the way the door looks when it opens. If you can't look at a door, you're meant to walk through a door. The solution we are given doesn't always look like the solution we want. We wish someone else would go. We want someone else to volunteer. We don't want to go talk to those people because they're weird. God can only open up a door so wide for us to walk through it. And I'm not entirely sure that Nehemiah wanted to go to Jerusalem. But he did. He prayed about it, and he went. Nehemiah's last movement is simply that. His heart was broken. He prayed, and then he goes. In in verse 9 of chapter 2, So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. How's that? That's awesome. I went to Jerusalem and stayed there for three days. Do you know what the hardest part about going is? Going. Actually going. The first step is always the scariest step. If you're like me, I can find a reason after reason never to leave, to stay put, and feel pretty darn good about my decision. It's not hard. Here's why. It's the same reason why it's very easy not to come to church on a Sunday. There's always an excuse. There's always a reason why. Nehemiah had plenty of excuses. 
the biggest one comes in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and again in chapter 6. People were out to kill Nehemiah. When Sanballat heard about this, that's the bad guy in the story, they were rebuilding the wall. He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and the pres- in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall where they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life after the, from heaps of rubble and burned as they are? Tobiah, the other bad guy in the story who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox can climb up those walls and they'll break it down. Okay, so he's being ridiculed. Later, chapter 6, this guy Samballot tries to lure out Nehemiah so he can harm him. Sanballat and Geshem, the other bad guy, sent me a message. Come, let me meet, let us meet together in one of the village in the plain of Ono. Nehemiah heard what they wanted to do, and he said, but I didn't go because they were going to harm me. You're always going to find a reason not to do something. Nehemiah shows us in the face of opposition, he still took the step. God's call for us to take a next step in our life, in our faith, is very clear. Take the next step, even in the face of opposition. So what's stopping us from taking the next step? What's stopping you from taking the next step? I remember when I was six years old, um, and, my, and my friends on my street, Matt, Andy, Kevin, and Doug, those were my buddies, and we got into a lot of stupid trouble. But I remember that I would always tell them about Jesus. So much so that I think they finally said, fine, Brad, we'll believe in Jesus if you shut up. And so, I mean, I just kind of wore them down, right? And, and then in high school, my teammates would, would, and my friends sometimes called me pastor because my favorite classes were my Bible classes. I went to a, Bible, a Christian school, and I wouldn't drink at parties. But I was a designated driver, and I charged double for gas because they were all drunk. Okay, it's a money-making opportunity. So they would call me pastor, and I didn't like it. Why? Because I didn't like the idea for being a pastor. Then before I left to college, I knew from, uh, I, would, I was at a summer camp, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that, you know, God's calling me into some sort of ministry. And I was like, no, my brothers do that. And I got to be better than my brothers. Still am. But I got to be better than my brothers. I don't want to do that. And so I went to school and I majored in music. Okay, this was my Jonah experience. Okay, I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a pastor. I was embarrassed to be a pastor. I was so afraid of what people might think of me. I was so afraid of of what that life would look like. And I didn't like the way that God was moving me. I was afraid. Sometimes we let our fear of what others might think of us keep us from going where God wants us to go. What are you afraid of when you think about going? Are you afraid of commitment? Well, if I say yes to this, I'm going to have to do this every week. And I don't know if I want to do that. Does the commitment scare you? Or is it failure? What if I volunteer here and it all of a sudden just all goes, how does, what do we do with that? Is it the fear of failure? Is it the fear of missing out on something else that might come along? Is it fear of what others might think? What if you don't like it? What if it's hard? Sometimes going, these fears mount up. What are you afraid of? Is it any of those? Is it something else? When you think about the next step God's inviting you to, what is it that keeps you away? If it's a deeper walk with him, is it the fear of not sleeping in or the fear of missing your show so you can read your Bible? What 
are you afraid of? Well, I didn't do too well in music class, and so music theory doesn't go well with dyslexic people. I can play music fine, but I didn't do well with theory, so my teacher sits me down and says, you're failing, and you might want to change your major before you're stuck and you have to repeat this again. So I thanked him for that, and I changed my major. I gave in, and finally I went along with what God wanted me to do. Then a few years later, I found myself being fired from a church, okay? And I was ticked. I didn't do anything wrong. Church politics are a terrible thing. Uh, but I got stuck in the middle of it, and they said, Brad, you got to go. Uh, and so I got sucked into that. Immediately, I went, well, this is terrible. The church hurt me. And so I stayed away from the church. I decided I was going to go get a Ph.D., and if I can't be a pastor, I'm going to educate pastors, right? I'm going to fix the problem from the beginning. And so I was like, fine, I'll do this. So I went to school. I TA'd for a class, and I was like, this is terrible. This is so boring, and some of these students can't write worth a lick. And so I decided I'm not going to do that. And so church politics kept me out, and then I said I'm out. And so I avoided getting involved even in a church at that time. I didn't want to play music. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to help with kids. I just would go because I knew that's what God wanted us to do, and I would go and sit and go home. I had a job doing movie editing. I, I, I did photo, photography, movie editing, and I just did that and stayed away from it. And I put my hands up in the air basically and said, I'm out of here. Sometimes, if you're like I was, we let the way that we've been hurt keep us from getting involved. We put up a, a wall as a defense mechanism, and it prevents us from taking the next step. I'm sorry if you've been hurt by a church, and I really do mean that. I'm really sorry if a church has hurt you. Churches hurt people, and it's terrible that happens. And chances are, if you stepped foot into this church, that foot has been stepped on by somebody along the way. It's awful that it happens. It happens. It happened in the early church, and it'll happen again. Maybe this morning for you who are in the room, maybe someone bugged you already. It's bound to happen because there's people here. We're going to get hurt. However, what happens in those hurt, what happens with those hurts can oftentimes keep us from, fill, from fulfilling what God wants us to do, or they can invite us in so God uses us to fix the hurts that we have experienced and the hurts that we see. Sometimes we don't want to get involved because God's, we're afraid to get hurt again, but God says, yeah, but I want you to fix it. I want you to be a part of the solution so it doesn't happen again. I was there. And then it was about eight years later, a friend of mine called me out on it. I helped him. Uh, we, were, we planted a church in, in Orange County, and I was helping with him. And then he called me out on coffee one day and said, basically, you're allowing your hurt to dictate your story. And so you're defining yourself by everything that's happened to you, and it's keeping you out of the game. And he was speaking very plainly, and it's time you get back in. I was letting my hurts dictate my story, and I needed to get back in. Perhaps that's you today. You're allowing your hurts to say, no, I'm good. And God's saying, no, I want you back. I want you serving in a, with the kids. I want you helping with whatever's going on around here. I want you to talk to that person about Jesus. I want you to come here to in-person service. There's a whole bunch of steps that are around us, and we let our fear of being hurt again keep us from it. So we step back in. Carrie and I step back in. We were I was married to her at this time. And then the doubts hit up. Soon as you start working and you're doing what God has called you to do, there's going to be doubt. Why Satan loves to say, 
I don't think you should be doing this. Perhaps there's something better. We got back in, and then a few years later, it got hard again. There was a difficult situation. Tons of questions whether or not we were supposed to be there in, in the first place. Perhaps I just had a bad class that I TA'd for. I should go take over my dad's business or keep going with video editing and graphics. All of these flooding back into what we were doing. The difficulties around us created doubt. They usually do. Doubts just don't pop up when things are going great. Satan uses those doubts to pull us away from what God wants us to do. Perhaps your doubts that you are having are distancing you from where God is wanting your actual destination to be. Your doubts can distance you from your destination. Doubts are great. That's where we actually grow in faith. Because of our doubts, we have questions and we start examining. We start inviting God in more and in more. And through our doubts, we learn more and more about what God is doing. Doubts give us further confirmation of what is actually real. However, doubts, when we allow them to dictate our lives, start to take over and will never take another step. They keep us distance. Doubts are commonplace in the scripture. Almost every major Bible character has doubts. Moses at the burning bush. Are you sure you want me to do this? Abraham, when he's 90-something years old, told he's going to have a kid. No, not me. David, am I really going to be king? I'm being hunted. Jesus, in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, is there another way? Everybody has doubts. So why wouldn't you? But instead of their doubts keeping them away God's from God's call, their doubts drew them closer. And what they found was God was working through their doubts to use them in a way that they thought never they would never imagine. So what's keeping you? The command's there. Based upon everything that Jesus has done, go. Hardest command in the Bible because there's so much baggage tied to it. But the invitation remained. For a while, my family owned a restaurant. And I I got to be the the GM of a restaurant, which was a terrible idea. But that was me. And so we had a guy who would help us with marketing. And, and his job was to go business to business around the business parks and take them free lunch and say, use us for your next event. And it was like a catering deal. And, and there was one time I walked in and, and it was 930 and he was supposed to be out at eight and he was still getting stuff ready. And I said, so and so, what's going on? What are you what are you doing? Oh, I'm getting ready to go. OK. And I would go through and start, you know, prepping food and doing all that stuff and turning the, getting the restaurant ready. And I come back a couple minutes later. It's 9:45. Hey, man, uh, you ready yet? I'm fixing, fixing to go. He's from the south. And I said, Oh, cool, fixing. All right. 10:30 rolls around and he's still fixing to go, and he never went. Oh, it's too late now. I missed the appointments. Oh. This is another situation which leads to another conversation. What I fear most is that all of us will be fixing and getting ready to go and never actually going anywhere. So I would love us to take some time and say, God, where is that you're calling me to go? And I just don't want to sit here and fix to go. I actually want to take a step. What's that next step for you? What's holding you back? 
And when you identify what that thing is holding you back, invite God into that place and say, why is this holding me back? And perhaps that's the place you should go. A friend of mine says, your calling and what you should do is where you see the greatest pain and, actually, and, and then combine it with what makes you the most mad. There's your place. Because you have passion and there's the pain to fix. What's keeping you? Would you pray with me? Father, you invite us all to go. You invite us to take a step. And whether that next step is a ministry with other people or whether the next step is actually a faith journey with you, Lord, give us the courage to take that step. And then give us the courage to take another one and then another one and then another one. Help us to go. Help us to answer the call. Go into all the world, you say. As we go into our worlds this week, may we go with the confidence that you've called us to be right where we're supposed to be with the message that you've designed to give us and give us the courage to share it. In Jesus' name.